Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 136, The Power of Mercia. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Alexis, David, and Ryan for joining up already. This episode will cover the years 678 to 685, and its major characters will be King Egfrith of Northumbria, the man who brought down Wolf Hera, was wielding supreme power in Northumbria and was arguably exercising quite a bit of power south of the Humber as well. King Aethelred of Mercia, son of Penda and brother of Wolf Hera, and a frighteningly savvy king, quite possibly the most like his father out of all the sons of Penda. And he has been busy securing his religious flank, while also working hard to secure his border territories. And King Bridey of Pictland the cousin of King Egfrith of Northumbria, and frankly, he probably owed his throne to Egfrith's military intervention some years ago. So, when we last left off, Bishop Wilfrid had returned to Northumbria with a papal decree that he was to be reinstated and that he'd be given rather significant powers within the kingdom of Northumbria. And King Egfrith was less than impressed, and he imprisoned the bishop shortly before ejecting him from Northumbria entirely tough break for Wilfred. He had a war band, but King Egfrith was too much like his dad and grandfather, so that didn't work out. So then he tattled to the Pope, and the Pope gave him full support. But Egfrith didn't seem to care all that much about what some priest in a far-off land thought. So, pretty much played all his cards at this point. And what's an exiled bishop to do in a circumstance such as that? Well, Northumbria is a bit chilly, you don't hear many people talking about beach vacations to Yorkshire. So it looks like he decided that he had enough of thick wool blankets and he headed south to Sussex, which isn't exactly balmy, but is definitely warmer than Yorkshire. And he headed to the beach town of Selsey. And there he founded a sea and went to work converting the South Saxons who were living there. Now, wait a minute, Jamie, I can almost hear you asking. I thought you said the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had already been converted by this point. Well, that is true. However, just because the monarchs had converted doesn't mean that the population at large had fully embraced Christianity. And given how rural and distant some of these communities were, it's entirely likely that there were quite a few Saxons who had not even been baptized yet. The point is... Wilfred wasn't taking this situation on the chin, and if his home kingdom, and specifically King Egfrith, didn't appreciate him, well, he'd just make friends among the South Saxons. And this actually is an interesting dichotomy between Egfrith and Aethelred, isn't it? King Aethelred was busy giving the church lands in Mercia, and he was putting down some pretty hardcore curses on the land to ensure that they stay permanently in the hands of the church. But meanwhile, Egfrith was giving the church the finger. So it is quite a juxtaposition, isn't it? And while I don't want to wade into questions of divine intervention and whether deities will punish an entire people for the decisions of a single ruler, I do wonder what the Anglo-Saxons thought about Egfrith's choices. I mean, the Pope is supposed to have Jesus on speed dial. Is that really the guy you want to mess with? Well, Egfrith wasn't worried. 
and he had bigger fish to fry anyway. Why worry about the church when you're dealing with conflict with King Aethelred of Mercia? Yep, it looks like Northumbria and Mercia were fighting once again. So, why were they fighting this time? Well, it's hard to say. We talked last week about how it's possible that Egfrith was acting as an overlord of Mercia for a while. So perhaps Mercia was reasserting its independence. And personally, that's my best guess of what happened, since Egfrith was on the offensive. And it's close in time to when Mercia was defeated. And that probably did lead to a regime change. And the fight really doesn't look like it was over anything personal, like setting aside Queen Osthrith, the sister of Egfrith, or anything like that, since we know that Egfrith actually stayed married to her. So that's my guess. I think they were probably fighting because Mercia was saying, you know what, Northumbria, you don't get to control us anymore. But if Mercia was already independent, then the two kingdoms might have been fighting once again over who controlled the kingdom of Lindsay. And that is entirely possible as well. And, if that's the case, Lindsay might have started to feel a little bit like that girl at the club who everybody keeps buying drinks for, but she just wants to be left alone and listen to the music. But, much like that girl at the club, apparently no one really cared about what the kingdom of Lindsay wanted. But my guess is Mercia was asserting itself, and Egfrith really didn't appreciate that, so he gathered his warbands and he marched. And Egfrith was not alone. He brought with him his brother, Elfwina son of Oswiu, and possibly the sub-king of Deira. Yep, King Aethelred had two sons of Oswiu marching upon him. Two monarchs from the line of Ida. That's never good. However, King Aethelred was a son of Penda, and Northumbria was not the only kingdom that had experienced veteran warriors on hand. Mercia was home to warbands that brought his family treasure, glory, and victory time and time again. Warbands whose might could be seen on the battlefield as easily as the gold and garnet cloisonne that decorated their armor. And they were now under Aethelred's command. So, he readied his warbands and marched. Chances are, Egfrith, having invaded, had stationed his army at a single location, and was simply waiting for Aethelred to meet him. After all, we're talking about armies that number in the hundreds, not the hundreds of thousands. So finding each other, if they were both out there maneuvering, would have been a nightmare, if not impossible. So Egfrith was probably encamped, and just waiting. And in 678 or 679, within Mercia, near the Trent, the two armies met. And once again, we aren't given many details. I imagine that the Northumbrians had split their forces into individual warbands, with the king controlling one warband and other nobles, including Aelfwina, controlling the others. And from the record, it looks like the fighting was fierce, and the Mercians started to do what they do best. They started killing Northumbrians. And my guess is that things really started to turn when sub-king Aelfwina of Deira was slain, and his warband broke. Fear is contagious. And as you know from the Warband episodes, these battles were more about the tests of morale than anything else. And it wasn't long before the Northumbrian host was utterly broken. And Egfrith, along with what was left of his forces, fled the field. Now, remember when I mentioned superstition and divine intervention earlier? Well, here we had a king who was friendly to the church, defeating a king who was defying the church. 
And it seems like the chroniclers really didn't miss that fact, because they also included other events that probably looked like signs of an angry god to them. Because we're hearing that on that same year, the monastery at Cottingham, which was in Northumbria, was destroyed by a fire from heaven. Which actually sounds like it was either lightning, some sort of crazy meteor, or maybe just a drunk monk with a candle who came up with a rather ingenious excuse. And we're also told that St. Ethelretha had died. So you can imagine that the chroniclers might have thought that they were seeing the results of defying the church. But angry deities aside, let's actually spare a thought for Osthrith, Queen of Mercia. Someone who is often completely forgot when this era is spoken about, but also someone who is in a completely awful situation. That poor woman had found herself in a spot where she was married to the man who just killed her brother in battle, King Elfwina, while defeating her other brother, King Igfrith. How do you even begin to emotionally navigate that situation? It's not like she can turn to King Aethelred for support. King Aethelred was the one who did the killing. That has to be the most uncomfortable dinner table in the world. Ugh. So yeah, Aelfwina, sub-king of Deira, was dead. And this marks the point where, once again, Bernicia and Deira were fully united under a single ruler, King Egfrith. And actually, this is the last time that the two kingdoms would have their own rulers. The union was now firmly established. Northumbria was now a permanent thing. But despite that dubious silver lining, the defeat must have been pretty bad since King Egfrith never again tried to take over any of the southern kingdoms. Though to be fair, he also might have just been distracted and threatened by kingdoms beyond the wall. And at some point after this, possibly as a result of this fight, Lindsay was broken off from Northumbria once again and settled as a Mercian province. And actually, this time, they were fully annexed, and their old ruling dynasty was either wiped out, exiled, or completely dominated. And I say that because they completely vanished from the record, never to be seen again. Yikes. And now, the kingdom would be governed by Mercian eldermen. Lindsay, who never really seemed to have much independence to begin with, now lost even the appearance of freedom. And as for where the people of Lindsay were actually loyal to and what they thought about this, it's hard to say. On the one hand, you might be tempted to think that they were pro-Northumbrian. If they were friendly to Mercia, why would Mercia get rid of their royal family? Additionally, if they were friendly with Northumbria, they would have had an excellent reason to want to get rid of them. So, maybe they were pro-Northumbrian. However, we also have a story that sounds like they were very anti-Northumbrian. 50 years after King Oswald had died. Okay, well, let's actually be honest about this. 50 years after King Penda killed King Oswald and put him up on whale stings, Osthrith, the queen of the Mercians who we've been talking about, well, she wanted to have her uncle's remains transferred to the monastery at Bardney, which was in Lindsay. But the monks there wouldn't accept him because, quote, although they knew him to be a saint, they pursued him dead, with ancient enmities, as one sprung from another province who had taken rule over them, end quote. Do you see what Bede is saying there? They didn't want to take Oswald's remains in, because even 50 years later, even after he died in a pretty gruesome way, they were still angry because he had annexed Lindsay. Now, the monks might have just been grouchy about Bernicia and not Deira, 
And maybe the monks are not a good indication of how the people of Lindsay felt in general. But regardless, it seems like they were a bit put out by the entire thing. And interestingly, it wasn't just that they were refusing the bones of a Northumbrian king. They were also actively refusing a Mercian queen. So who knows exactly where Lindsay sided with this Northumbrian-Mercian struggle? Maybe they hated them both equally and just wanted to be left alone. But fat chance of that happening. As for the victory at the Trent, it didn't just take out a son of Oswiu and gain Mercia the kingdom of Lindsay. It also seems to have reestablished Mercian power in the south, because shortly thereafter, we see evidence that King Aethelred was exercising power in northern Wiltshire and in Wessex. Mercia was coming back. But this comeback also threatened to further destabilize the Heptarchy. And the reason for that isn't because of something like issues regarding the balance of power, border tensions, or anything like that. The reason things became all of a sudden really tenuous came down to how the Mercian ascendancy was secured. I mean, there was a big fight and quite a few people had died. But what is important is that one of those people was Aelfwina, sub-king of Deira. And the thing is that the death of Aelfwina, son of Oswiu, was a bit dodgy for everyone involved because Egfrith, king of Northumbria, was now honor-bound to seek vengeance. When you think about it, this is cheeky for all sorts of reasons. I mean, first of all, no one is going to war for Unferth the warrior. And I kind of think that sucks. I mean, you have dozens of warriors who died, and no one seems to care at all. But then the brother of a king dies, and suddenly we're at DEFCON 5. And I guess that might make a little bit of sense if it was an assassination or something. But Aelfwina went to war. What exactly did he think was going to happen? Complaining that one of your troops died in combat when you lead an invasion into foreign soil is a bit like complaining you got sick after having a curry from a fish and chippy. Everybody knows the risks. And when it happens, it's not exactly like it was a surprise. Hell, it's probably more of a surprise when it doesn't happen. So yeah, King Egfrit's royal butthurt does seem a bit disingenuous to me. Or, at the very least, stupid. And, as you probably started to gather, every time Mercia and Northumbria start to fight, it gets ugly. And my guess is that both sides were getting a bit tired of it. King Aethelred and King Egfrith had probably both realized that if they kept this up, they would not rule very long, because they wouldn't live very long. And that was probably keenly on King Egfrith's mind, since he still needed an heir. So, the question is raised, how do you navigate these matters of honor while also trying to stay, you know, alive? Well, they did the smart thing, and they sought out a third-party negotiator. And Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was brought in to mediate a peace treaty between the two kingdoms in 679. And at the end of it, King Aethelred agreed to pay a weregeld, a man price, for the death of Aelfwina. And then the matter was settled. I love that further war was avoided by basically Aethelred saying, Look, I'm sorry we killed your brother. Here's some gold. Maybe you can buy a new brother. But it worked, so, you know, whatever. And actually, it might have been this moment and the Archbishop's influence that led to the years of peace between Mercia and Northumbria that would follow. Yep, for a little bit, we actually have peace between the two kingdoms. Crazy, right? Now, 
The following year, in 680, it looks like King Aegfrith might have realized that going against the church was a bad idea. And so, on the same year that Archbishop Theodore held the Synod at Hatfield to try and sort out what sounds like issues of disunity among the English Christians, King Egfrith threw the Catholic Church a bone, and he recognized Canterbury as the see for the region. And perhaps it's fitting that this was on the same year that Abbess Hilda died. She was the relative of Edwin, who held the Synod of Whitby, and who was a strong supporter of the Celtic Church. But at last, the rivalry between York and Canterbury was over. Interestingly, though, while Egfrith did recognize Canterbury, he still wasn't letting Wilfred come home. I'm telling you, that conflict must have been far more personal than simple church politics. The king was holding one hell of a grudge. And Egfrith's submission to Canterbury was certainly a smart political move, because in the following year, 681, Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus appointed Bishop Trumwinna as the Bishop of the Picts and located that bishopric at Abercorn. Now, the reason why this is such a good thing for King Egfrith was that while he had halted the intervention on his southern neighbors of Mercia, he was still looking to expand his power. And that meant he needed to look north. And while King Egfrith had split up the bishopric of York, he was still expanding the general scope and umbrella of that power. And so by granting the bishopric of the Picts to Trumwinna and placing the sea at Abercorn, Canterbury was in essence supporting the Northumbrian domination of southern Pictland. It was basically saying, yeah, Pictland is all part of your umbrella. And sure, Mercia might have strongly pushed back against the Northumbrians, but the northern kingdom was still very powerful. And the fact that it continued to dominate the southern Picts, even to the point where they are establishing bishoprics in their territory, is an excellent example of exactly how powerful the Northumbrians were. They were basically setting up the bishopric of the Picts as part of the general scheme that included the bishoprics of Lindisfarne and Hexham. So we can look at this as Northumbria seeing Pictland as just a province within their own kingdom, something like a sub-kingdom, rather than as an independent people. And that was certainly in keeping with the relationships between the two kingdoms. I mean, the Angles were not messing around. And this wasn't over yet. Meanwhile, in 682, it looks like a plague ripped through Wales, killing a great number of people, including King Cadwallad of Gwyneth. Strangely, we don't see any mention of it in the Chronicle or in Bede's writings, which makes me suspect that this plague happened only in Wales. But whatever the case... Wales was having a hell of a time of it at this point. And this seems like it was just a bad time to be Celtic in general. Because in 684, King Egfrith did something strange and new. He sent an army to Ireland. Now, why do that? It seems strange, doesn't it? Ireland was a bit too far away to effectively administer, so annexing seems unlikely. And Egfrith's family had strong ties with the Scots and the Irish. Don't forget that the Scots and the Irish had sheltered his father and uncles while they were in exile and on the run from King Edwin. So why attack them? Well, it is possible that he did this as punishment for Irish support of Northumbria's enemies. Like perhaps they supported the Irish, British, or Pictish kingdoms that Northumbria was scuffling with. And we do have indications that the kingdoms would sometimes back each other. And the Northumbrians were, well, 
they were kind of rowdy with their neighbors. So this isn't out of the question. He also might have been looking to just douse any claims to the Northumbrian throne that his half-brother, Aldfrith, the child of King Oswiu and an Irish princess of the O'Neill dynasty, might have had. He also might have been looking to gain further support from the church by seeking out the remnants of the Celtic church who had retreated to Ireland. After all, hunting down heresy is a good way to make the Catholic church pretty happy at this point. Or, this might have just been simple economics, and maybe he was just seeking tribute. Perhaps to get treasure to give to his war bands, who, after the recent loss to the Mercians, might have started to seem less than loyal. It is a possibility. But whatever the case, we know that many in his court thought it was a foolish and unnecessary campaign. But Egfrith was king, and so they marched, probably under the command of Bertrand, son of Bjornhaith. You might remember Bjornhaith as the king who was involved in the earlier fight against the Picts. Well, it looks like this was a dynastic thing now. And when the Northumbrians arrived, they devastated part of Meath. The recent loss against Mercia aside, Northumbria was clearly still a force to be reckoned with, and they just gave a showpiece as to why. And the following year, in 685, trouble was once again brewing. And this time, the issue was the people north of the Wall, the Picts. It seems that while King Egfrith and the Northumbrians felt that the southern Picts should be under their control, not everyone agreed. Specifically, King Bridey of Pictland didn't seem to have agreed. It had been over a decade since Egfrith slaughtered the Pictish army under King Drest at the Battle of the Two Rivers, and then put King Bridey on the throne. And it really does seem to have been a slaughter. We're told that, quote, He slew an enormous number of the people, filling two rivers with corpses, so that, marvelous to relate, the slayers passing over the rivers dry of foot pursued and slew the crowd of fugitives, end quote. Now, marvelous was an interesting word choice by Stephen of Ripon. I would have said horrifying, but that's just me. Anyway, it had been over a decade since Egfrith walked on water in the most unholy of ways, and now it was looking like he would need to go back. And while St. Cuthbert warned him against a second expedition, this was King Egfrith we're talking about. He doesn't exactly take advice from priests. And so he disregarded the saint, gathered his men, and marched north. And consider how far Egfrith was marching. He would have had to have gone through Strathmore, near Forfar, and would have brought his troops into the northern kingdom of Kirkin. I mean, he crossed the Tay, just as Agricola had done about 600 years earlier. Egfrith was going deep into Pictish lands in order to bring war upon King Bridey. So what happened that led these two cousins, Kings Bridey and Egfrith, to fight? Well, it seems like the issue was that, for about a decade following his ascension to the throne, King Bridey had been mobilizing his Pictish warbands and re-establishing Pictish independence. Specifically, independence against the Northumbrians. And regardless of any family ties, Egfrith was not a man to allow for that. Now, interestingly, in the annals, the battle is referred to as, quote, a great battle between Picts, end quote. Between Picts? That's odd, isn't it? Why not against Picts? Or between Picts and Angles? And that entry raises a possibility. Could it be that Bjornhaith, the probable Pictish ally who might have been the cause of the Battle of the Two Rivers, 
Well, could it be that he was the spark that started this second fight? Since shrugging off Northumbrian domination might well have included ousting Egfrith's Pictish ally, Bjornhaith. And if that's the case, Bjornhaith's son, or maybe Bjornhaith himself, might have brought some Picts to fight with him. But King Egfrith was probably not the only king to be leading a multicultural army. That's because scholars believe that King Bridie might have had some Scottish warriors fighting alongside his Pictish army, possibly on orders from King Maelduin, who was probably still a bit sore over that whole ravaging of Meath thing. So this fight was turning out to be a pretty big deal. And on Saturday, the 20th of May, 685, at around 3 p.m. near Forfar, the two armies met. It became known as the Battle of Dunedin. It's also known as the Battle of Heron's Pool, or, as known by the Northumbrians, Nectensmere, Nectens Lake. Now, the length of Egfrith's march north gives me the impression that Bridie wasn't keen on the idea of fighting, and that he might have been falling back in order to avoid the conflict. But Egfrith continually advanced, attempting to force a battle. And that could account for why Bridie and his forces fell back at the opening of the battle and were chased by Egfrith and his Northumbrian warbands. But it seems that Egfrith forgot a key strategic fact. The farther he chased King Bridie, the deeper into unknown territory he was going. They weren't going to find any local support up there, and even worse, the terrain was a complete mystery to them. He and his men didn't know what was around the corner. But King Bridie did. And as the Picts fell back, they ran into a mountain pass pursued by Egfrith and his army. And there, Bridie sprung his trap, ambushing the confused Northumbrians. I like to imagine a confident Northumbrian army, resplendent in gold and garnet cloisonne armor, marching through Pictland, probably proud at the fear that their king inspired in his enemies, that these savage Picts would just run from the mere sight of them. Maybe they were smiling as they entered the pass, idly chatting about some pretty farm girl or how cowardly the Picts were. And then, suddenly, all around them, heavily armed warriors painted in woad leapt up from their hiding spot and charged down the hills. Once again, we aren't told much, but that's how I like to imagine it. But what we do know is that the Anglo-Saxons were ill-prepared for what essentially amounted to guerrilla tactics, and they were quickly enveloped and were massacred and we're told that King Egfrith, along with his entire royal warband, were butchered. And you might take this death in stride, since the line of Ida dying is like a Stark dying. It isn't exactly a shock. However, this fight was unlike many of the battles we read about in the Chronicle and elsewhere. The king and his entire royal guard were killed. That is no small thing. And typically, the battles didn't appear to have been this lethal, Though this was not the first time that we've seen something like this, and maybe the Picts were looking to repay the Anglo-Saxons for the savagery that was inflicted upon them at the Battle of the Two Rivers. Whatever the case, the Northumbrian army was devastated. And in victory, the Picts raised a symbol stone at Dunachin, which survived to our modern day. The northern advance of the Lion of Ida was finally halted at Dunachin. This defeat had a seismic impact upon Northern Britannia, 
Now, Bede gives us a summary of what followed, but interestingly, he distinguished the Pictish, Irish, and British reactions. We're told that the Picts had regained the land that they had lost to the English, while the Irish in Britain and the Britons themselves regained their liberty. So it sounds like the old borders between Northumbria and Pictland were reestablished with Northumbria moving back down to their own territories, while the Irish and the British kingdoms that had been dominated by the Northumbrians had regained their independence. In a single battle, that powerhouse that was Northumbria was starting to develop cracks. And this wasn't just bad for the line of Ida. Bishop Tremwina, the recently appointed Bishop of Pictland, suddenly found himself in a rather dangerous situation where he had angry Picts all around him. And it comes as no surprise that he was expelled from his bishopric at Abercorn, and that the southern Picts completely dismantled the diocese. And Tromwina, understandably spooked and crestfallen, liked it back to Whitby, where he retired. Following Dunachin, also known as Necton's Mara, the English frontier fell back to the Antonine Wall. And this loss was so bad that it would be nearly 300 years before the English would ever go that far north again. Considering how much power the Northumbrians wielded over the north, and how utterly shattered the northern power base was after this defeat, Necton's Mera really should be listed in the annals of great battles of British history, along with iconic fights like the Battle of Baden Hill. But think about all that we've seen. In just a few short years, we've seen Mercia rise under Wolfhera, only to be cut short by Northumbria. And now, as Mercia is once again regaining power under Aethelred, Northumbria has found itself humbled and in a dire situation following its ill-advised attacks on its Mercian, Pictish, and Irish neighbors. And, meanwhile, in Mercia, Queen Osthrith has lost yet another brother in battle. That poor woman. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>